Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his series, Everything Over Nothing, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you enjoy. Thanks, Joe. Children, you guys are dismissed for you guys, ladies, dismissed for Children's Church at this time. Don't hurt yourself on the way down. Hope all you kids saw the future Super Bowl champs last night. I'm hoping for a KCGB Super Bowl. We'll see what happens. If some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about, praise the Lord. And turn to Ecclesiastes <laughs> chapter 9. We'll be in Ecclesiastes 9, starting in verse 11, 9-11 this morning. Before we start, as, as I often do, I want to give you just a couple of book references uh, regarding the topic that we're going to talk about today. The first uh, reference I want to give to you is uh, it's actually a, a book at, that's part of Zondervan's Counterpoint series. Uh, you'll see a lot of these, this format, kind of on the covers, and uh, of several just hard topics in ministry today, in church theology today. This one is Four Views on Divine Providence. And Zondervan came out with this counterpart series to just take difficult topics in theology and present different options that are on the table and what the church has historically believed about these topics uh, throughout, throughout church history. And one of those hard topics is divine providence. There's a, a reformed perspective in here, an open theism perspective everything on the gamut in between. These are really, really good. I want to encourage you to pick these up, not only for this topic, but for anything else in those CounterPoint series. They're really good. The other book I want to mention is something that one of our elders, Bill Riggs, actually gave this to me. It's called The Doors of the Sea. It's written by David Bentley Hart. And if you don't know the name David Bentley Hart, it's a good one that you should maybe be familiar with. If, if you like the discussion between Calvinism and Arminianism, or non-Calvinists. Uh, David Bentley Hart is a name that you'll, you'll want to refer to. He takes a, a much more Eastern view as opposed to a hard, strict Calvinism, and he presents some really compelling arguments. This was, uh, the subtitle of this book is Where Was God in the Tsunami? So it deals with the problem of evil and how sovereignty and, and man's free will kind of comes together in the scriptures. Again, just a really good read. You'll find a, some other works out on Amazon by him. If you want to take a look at those after the service, just please come up and, and uh, take a look. And if you need some help to get some good resources, we'd love to help you do that. Just talk to me or, or Daniel in the church office, and uh, we'd love to help you out with that. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. What else was I going to say as we start? I think we're good kids are dismissed, ready to go. All right. Ecclesiastes 9. In 1950s, uh, there was a short story written by a guy named Ray Bradbury. You, you might not have heard of it. It's not extremely popular. It's called A Sound of Thunder. It's about a, you can go online, 10-page PDF, you can print it off. It's, it's a really good short story. But the story begins in the year 2055, and it's a science fiction story about time travel. In the year 2055, Bradbury says that we figured it out. We learned the dimensions of time and, and how to go back into time. 
but it was illegal to use the time-traveling machine. So you had to pay a very large sum of money if you wanted to time travel. Sure enough, a man comes along, his name is Eccles, and he wants to go back 60 million years so that he can shoot a dinosaur. He can go on a safari, and he wants to kill not just any dinosaur, he wants to kill the T-Rex, right? So he pays a large amount of sum, a large amount of money to the guys. They have this business, and, and they set the dial, and they take him back. And he has two guides on this journey. Uh, one guy's name is Travis, and the other guy's name is Lesperance. And they have figured out that a, that a T-Rex was going to die at a very strategic moment in time. It was going to be crushed by a tree because they had gone back in time and, and figured out where to kill this thing and, and how it was going to die anyway. And the story goes that um, Eccles was going to be taken right before that moment, just two minutes before he was going to die anyway, and shoot this massive Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's just one rule that Eccles is told that he must follow or he will suffer the grave consequences. And the rule is this. After you get off the time machine, there's a, a metal walkway, a sidewalk, and it lays about six inches above the grass, doesn't touch a blade of grass, ferns, or anything on the floor of this prehistoric time. Otherwise, you are in danger of of making a huge mistake if it would have. So as you get off the time machine, you stay on the trail. You don't go off that metal path at all costs. No matter what happens, you don't leave the metal path. No matter what you do, Travis says to him, do not go off this path for any reason. And he says, well, what's the big deal about, about going off the path? And here's how the story goes. Say we accidentally kill one mouse here. That means all the future families of this one particular mouse are destroyed, right? Eccles agrees. And all the families of the families of the families of that one mouse, with a stamp of your foot, you annihilate first one, then a dozen, then ten, then a thousand, then a million mice. Eccles responds, well, who cares? They're mice. So what? Travis snorted quietly. Well, what about the foxes? that'll need those mice to survive. For want of 10 mice, a fox dies. For want of 10 foxes, a lion starves. For want of a lion, all manner of insects, vultures, infinite billions of life forms are thrown into chaos and destruction. Eventually, it all boils down to this. 59 million years later, a caveman, one of a dozen on the entire world, goes hunting for wild boar and saber-toothed tiger for food. But you, friend, have stepped on all the tigers in that region by stepping on one single mouse. So the caveman starves. The caveman, please note, is not just any expendable man. No, he is an entire future of a nation. From his loins would have sprung 10 sons. From their loins, 100 sons, and thus onward to a civilization. Destroy this one man and you destroy a race, a people, an entire history of life. Perhaps Rome never rises on its seven hills. Perhaps Europe is forever a dark forest. Step on a mouse and you crush the pyramids. Queen Elizabeth might never have been born. Washington might never have crossed the Delaware. There might not have been a United States at all. So be careful. Stay on the path. Never step off. So sure enough, they go and they, they find this T-Rex and they kill it. But in the process of killing the T-Rex, it was, it was such a terrifying event, in fact, 
Eccles just turned around and ran the other way right when he saw the, the monster. He was scared out of his wits. And in the process of running for his life, he stepped off the path. And he kills a little butterfly. You find it in the mud of his shoe. And he comes back, he travels back in time to a totally, completely different world than they left in the first place. And as a result of that, Travis shoots him. And that's the end of the story. People read that kind of story and they, they really think that they have the wisdom to know what will happen a hundred years from your life. Two hundred years. They really think they are that intelligent that a thousand years from now, even two millennia from now, we know exactly how our decisions are going to influence the rest of life and eternity. And not only is it incredibly naive, but it's extremely arrogant. And if we really believed that all of these things would happen just, just from one small single choice that we make, none of us would even get out of bed in the morning. We'd be terrified of changing the, the littlest thing by killing an ant by accident. The preacher in Ecclesiastes addresses all of it. And I want to look at three passages in Ecclesiastes about time and chance. These are going to be some great passages. So look down at your text, and I'm just going to read these one after the other. One from chapter 9, chapter 10, and then a final passage in chapter 11. And we're getting close to summarizing the book of Ecclesiastes and getting to chapter 12. So, so hang on, and, and hopefully we'll be, we'll be through this book pretty soon. Look down at Ecclesiastes 9, verse, verse 11. I'm going to read two verses there. 9, 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And, and if you have a highlight, highlighter you write in your Bible or underline, time and chance happen to them all. Look at verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. That kind of reminds you of the Abraham Lincoln quote. There. Verse 11, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Of course there isn't. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, even to eight, for you know, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Verse three. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if the tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. 
As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb, so a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So diversify your investment accounts, okay? In a nutshell, Ecclesiastes has uh, many themes, but perhaps one of the greatest themes throughout this book is wisdom. And over and over again, Solomon will tell us, the preacher will say that wisdom has its advantages, but he also says that wisdom has its limitations. There's only so much that wisdom can bring you, there's only so much advantage that wisdom can have in life and by making good choices. For instance, when we look back at chapter nine, verse 11, where we started. Ecclesiastes nine, verse 11. It starts out and it says, again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, right? Wisdom teaches if you wanna win a race, you need to be swift. However, the race often doesn't go to the most swift, to the swiftest. If you wanna win a battle, the battle typically goes to the strong. However, the victory in battle doesn't always go to the strongest. And if you expect to have prosperity in life, it, we expect that prosperity is gonna to come to the wise, but it's not always that way. Solomon's conclusion is at the end of verse 11 and at the beginning of verse 12. For time and chance happen to everyone and surely no one knows his appointed time. Now, what is the preacher saying here? Do we just chalk everything up to fate? Do we leave it to the gods, let them decide? Do we cast our lots and just throw caution into the wind? Nobody knows what's gonna happen anyway. All of it's out of our control. The first thing to note is this. Solomon is saying wisdom has its limitations. Again, there is value to wisdom and there's a profit and a benefit to all of us as we walk through life with godly wisdom. However, he's also saying this, life is unpredictable. You can't put everything into your scheme, you can't put it all into your table and your graph, and it's always gonna come out the exact same way. Especially in a fallen world, we don't know what's gonna happen. And as wise as we might be, death might come upon us earlier than we could ever expect. Things will happen to us that we can never control. And the most unpredictable event of all of life, of course, is the day of our death. There's two extremely, extremely important words to, to study and to know through Ecclesiastes, and, and especially in this passage. And it's right there in Ecclesiastes 9, 11. Time and chance. Time and chance. The first Hebrew word I want to talk about here in this context is time. At the, it's pronounced eight in Hebrew. And when you talk about time, in, in general, in the Old Testament, time can have four different meanings, depending on the context in which you find it. All right, so time, when you see it in the, in the Old Testament, it could refer to just general time. It was the time of the sunset, it was the time of the morning, and they went out on their way. Time can refer to something usual or a proper time, when David sins with Bathsheba, it was the time when the kings usually are the proper time for kings to go out in battle. Instead, he's at the palace. 
Time could be determined. could be the, the planned time. You certainly have that in the very next verse. Or you could have something that is uncertain in its time. So four different nuances of this one word. Context is ultimately going to determine it because it's all the same Hebrew word. And the standard Hebrew lexicons all say this about Ecclesiastes 9.11. Time there refers to those unpredictable, uncertain moments in life that none of us know are coming. It's only used here in the Old Testament that time has that specific meaning, only one use in all the Old Testament. Moreover, the next word, the word for chance, is only used twice in the entire Old Testament. Right here, Ecclesiastes 9, 12, and 1 Kings 5, verse 4. And it describes times when the day of your death encounters you or meets you at an inopportune time, a chaotic time, an unexpected time, and yet still an appointed time. And it's an extreme tragedy that there is a break in the verses right between 11 and 12. If we were rewriting and translating Ecclesiastes, I would start verse 12 one line later than it actually starts because those two Hebrew words for time are the exact same Hebrew word. And I think they're saying the exact same thing, not two different things. I would argue that both verse 11 and 12 in time, when it is used, talks about the appointed time, the time when we meet our death, the time that none of us can plan, but all of us know that it is coming, the time that God knows specifically the days of our life and the day of our death. For time and chance will happen to them all. No one knows his appointed time referring to the same thing to death. You're going to see... Um, more of the same thought as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, and you're going to see more of it even as we finish up the sermon, but I uh, want to just stop here and, and give kind of a silly illustration. Do you guys, if I use the name Steve Irwin, do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Thank you. Who, who said that so loud in the back? The crocodile hunter, Greg. You know exactly who I'm talking about. I loved watching nature shows when I was in high school. They're like one of the favorite things. Me and my brother would always, always watch these shows. They were incredible. We'd watch the Marty Stauffer old school ones, and then Steve Irwin came along, and he was like the nature man of all nature. And you guys know that it was just an amount of time before this guy was going to die, right? He would literally capture the biggest crocodiles that he could find, and so they weren't harmed in the process. He would relo relocate them to another area where they could live uh, in their habitat and be fine and not bother anybody. So he spent his career basically wrestling crocodiles and getting them to the right spot. Uh, Steve Irwin was incredible, but what he was really good at was being extremely careful with nature. He captures this, this massive crocodile, and he's got him in a net and he brings buckets of water, and he pours water on the crocodile's skin. Is that what you say, crocodile skin? Because if their skin isn't wet, it'll start to dry out and crack. Thanks, Steve Irwin, for doing that, for taking care of the crocodile. 
He'd build like a shelter over the captured crocodile because they like shade and they need to be out of this. He was meticulous with his care for nature and for God's creation. It was, it was amazing. And you'd see these things like, I would never ever do that, but then you saw him being extremely careful, taking his time, doing it the right way so that it gets done the right way. Painstakingly careful, right? Look at, look at Ecclesiastes 10, verse 8. Some of you guys have dangerous jobs. You, you work your careers and you work in dangerous situations every single time you go to work. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 10, he who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered, endangered by them. Accidents are going to happen. They're part of life, and we have no control over those things. Now, these verses here in Ecclesiastes are a lot different than what you'll find, say, for instance, in Psalm chapter 7. Read a few of these verses. Psalm 7, verse 14. See the one who is pregnant with wickedness, who conceives destructive plans and, and gives birth to harmful lies. He digs a pit, and then he falls into the hole he has made. He becomes the victim of his own destructive plans. And the violence he intended for others falls on his own head. I will thank the Lord for his justice. You don't get any of that in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is simply talking about the dangers of dangerous things that we encounter. They might be your job, they might just be going out and, and on a hunt or on a safari. It's like we read about. Unlike Psalm 7, Ecclesiastes 10, 8 through 11 doesn't mention an evil person. Falling into a pit is not always a punishment for somebody. There are unavoidable accidents in life. And it doesn't matter how careful you are, death will come upon you, and you will experience it. So what we've said so far is this. Wisdom has its limitations. Number two, life is unpredictable. But if there isn't a more timely lesson for us than this right here in Ecclesiastes, in 2020 and 2021, Death still comes to those who are really, really careful in life. Death still awaits the person who is haphazard about everything and the person that takes extreme caution over everything. You have no control over the day of your death. So, Time Magazine don't send, Brad, don't send me article, don't send me an email about this, okay? You guys, you guys can email me about this if you want to. I probably won't read it, all right? Just a caveat. Time Magazine drafts this article, December 14th. 300,000 people have died of COVID by December 14th. That's, and that's staggering. That's something that we should absolutely take a step back and say, wow, this is, this is serious. And it's just as serious here in the United States as it is across the world, right? You guys are twice as likely to die of heart failure this year than you are to die of COVID. Twice as likely. You're twice as likely to, to die of cancer 
than you are to die of COVID. Now, are you taking the same cautions for heart failure that you're taking for COVID? Are you taking the same cautions for cancer as you are for COVID? Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to be political. Be wise with how you're interacting with people. Be wise with family members. We, we're studying this thing. We know the trends are out there. So I'm not saying be a fool and throw caution into the wind here at all. What I am saying is this. No matter how careful you are, death is going to come upon you. What I am saying is, is some of the words from one of my favorite theologians who experienced the, almost the exact same thing when nuclear warfare was the big thing to watch out for. Listen to this quote. Do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. Okay, so you and all those who you love were already sentenced to death long before COVID ever came out. And a quite high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had, indeed, one very great advantage over our ancestors. Anesthetics, right? Anesthesiology. But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. Solomon is, Ecclesiastes is, is pretty straightforward here. Accidents happen, life is dreadful, it is unpredictable, you are not going to stave off the day of your death, right? We've got great education in America. Nobody yet has figured out a piece of knowledge that will cause them not to die. We have great science and technology. We have better, better health care than we have ever had here in the history of the world today. And nobody has yet figured out the pill that will cause them not to die, Right? It's going to happen. Solomon says, yeah, you're going to die, so here's the deal. Get to work. <laughs> Use the abilities that God has given you to serve people and to glorify God in your life. Live life to the fullest. Get busy living or get busy dying. Look at Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters and you will find it after many days. Listen, do things that are going to lead to success in life. Do your job, do your work, and God is going to honor that. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you, knew, you know not what disaster might happen to you on earth. Keep going in life. Live life as God intended you to live it. If the clouds are full of rain and, and they empty themselves on the earth, or if a tree falls to the south or to the north, listen, yeah, it might rain tomorrow. But if you're a farmer and you don't get your seed in the ground because you're afraid it's going to rain, guess what? That crop ain't going to come up. So get after the fields. None of us can predict life. None of us know what's going to happen. So do your job and live life to the fullest. Again, if there isn't a, a more applicable lesson for us than, than this one here in Ecclesiastes, I don't know, I don't know what there would be. This is, when we talk about time and chance, 
in these verses in this book. The, the doctrine, the theology that we're centering on is called the theology of divine providence, God's providence. And I want to just, uh, before we conclude the sermon, I want to talk about the theology of providence, what it is, and the history of it as we move forward. When we talk about God's providence, this might not have been a, a, a word that you've heard of before. It was very famous in theology in generations past. Today, we don't talk about providence that much because we're much more modern and even postmodern. But providence itself is a word that means to see beforehand or to know beforehand. The theology of providence has tended to focus on God's creation and sustaining of his creation. And so the earliest Christians, really through the patristic era, when they studied this idea of God's providence, providence was understood as the existence of God who cares for the world in which he created. God exists, and he cares for his world in a very intimate and personal way. As Father, God displays a concern and a protection for humanity. Listen to Matthew chapter 10. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's knowing about it. God's providence, he is intimately aware of the deepest needs, the smallest needs, not only we have, but even all of his creation. The fact that evil exists in the world is, is not evidence of God's not existing or his lack of care. Instead, evil exists because spiritual forces that are against the forces of good and the, and the forces of God and man's freedom to sin, that's what causes evil. It was Augustine, the great church father, who, who believed that um, actually caused a major division between the Western church and the Eastern church and, and Western thought and what we would term today as Eastern thought. In the West, Augustine taught that man is only free to sin apart from Christ. But in the Eastern world, church and theology, they held on to a, an idea of, of freedom for man, that even apart from God, there's something inside man, the image of God in man, that can cause him or her to choose good or evil in any given situation. And so you've got a, a division between the West and the East, but on the Western side, the theology that we've been influenced with the most, it was between, people would fall on uh, the doctrine of providence somewhere between a moderate, Augustine view, and a very strict, reformed, a strong view of God's providence. The moderates were, were guys like Molina, who created what was called a, a Molinist view of God's sovereignty and his knowledge of what will happen. In essence, what Molina said was that uh, God knows all the possibilities of all the choices that you could make, and that's what makes him all-knowing God. But he waits for you to actually make those choices, and then whatever happens as the consequence of that choice will be given to you. That's what preserves a freedom in man. Otherwise, if there is no freedom for man to completely choose on his own, that is not, in essence, freedom at all. Uh, Jacobus Arminius was one that uh, followed up with that, saying that humanity has a true freedom to choose good or to choose evil. Others maintained a robust Augustinian theology, especially the Reformers. You think about Martin Luther and, and John Calvin. Again, they would say that there, there is no freedom to mankind to choose to do good apart from Christ. The only thing they can choose is sin, because they are enslaved to sin apart from him. 
Since the uh, medieval period and, and the patristic period after that was what we know as the watershed moment in history called the Enlightenment. It was during the Enlightenment that deism and atheism would eventually lead to a flat-out denial of God's providence. Remember, God's providence teaches that not only he creates the world and everything in it, but he also sustains it. It was the deist who came along and said, you know, maybe God created everything, but then he left it to function by itself through natural causes. And the world itself was, was going to take care of itself apart from God. Turning their gaze to nature, the rationalists restricted God's care to general terms. God did create, but he allows the world to function according to its own physical laws inside of its own closed system. It was only time before the denial of God's providence over everything led to a denial of God's providence over anything in life. Just recently in, in modern theology, we've seen the beginning of, of something called process theology. The process theologian would believe that God cannot act or cause anything unilaterally by himself. All God can do is to respond to the free choices of men. The open theist believes that human freedom cannot be determined or foreknown in any way. So you truly have freedom and, and God will respond when you make those free choices. God really doesn't even know what might occur 100 years from now or even tomorrow. And let me just point out the obvious when we talk about a, a theology of God's providence because this is, this is something that shapes not only our doctrine of salvation, what we believe about our ability to respond to the call of the gospel, but it influences what we believe about living our life on a daily basis and the choices that we have to make whether to walk in wisdom or to deny that wisdom, even for believers, God's providence is gonna influence us at every step of the way. So let me just point out the obvious, and, and I'll bring all this back as we, uh, as we close with some applications. Anytime we talk about man's freedom and God's sovereignty, almost everybody, the problem of evil, it's, these topics are, are always gonna be relevant for the church today. And every time we talk about it, especially to a modern audience, it always seems like it has to be one or the other. Either God is sovereign or he's not. Either mankind is completely free to make his choices or he's not. And because we are all modern and influenced by Western thought, all of us want things to be black and white. All of us want this thing to be so simple and we love either-ors. We don't like both-ands. In other words, God's sovereignty determines everything. It's his choice. Otherwise, he's not sovereign. Either man really is free and responsible for his choices, or he's not free, and therefore he's not responsible for his choices. Understand that at least half of the world doesn't believe that. That's a very Western modern thought. Eastern people have no problem with the compatibility of God's sovereignty and man's freedom. Probably over half the world has no problem taking these two concepts, which seem to contradict themselves, but actually bringing them together so that they are mutual and they do agree with one another in ways that we can't fathom or understand. And so, yeah, maybe the illustration really is there's something to say about when we enter heaven and the gates of heaven, the sign above it says, all who will 
believe in me. And then you look back on the backside of that sign and it says, chosen from the foundations of the world, right? Maybe both of those things can actually come together and, and they can make sense in ways that we cannot understand. Wisdom has its limitations. God is sovereign. No matter how wise you are, his appointed times will come to pass. And so be wise. You have the freedom to make choices. Make good choices that are pleasing to God. And most of all, understand that the providence of God, his care for you and his sustaining of your life your breath and your existence is something of grace that is given to you. You don't cause any of that stuff. We depend completely on the goodness of God for his providential care, not only over us, but over the creation which he has made. Let me summarize with just a few points as we close. Number one, God's providence and care over his creation extends to all matters. God's providence and care extends to all matters, those things which are good and those things which are seemingly not good. In Romans 8, 28, of course, is the verse that we will go back to over and over and over again. All things work out for good to those who love God. So a robust doctrine of God's providence tells us that God will use a pagan king like Cyrus, Isaiah 44 and 45, for his glory and for his purposes. He will use a pagan king like Herod for his glory and for his purposes. And he will use good things for his glory and for his purposes too. A lot of times we can't see the, the end from the beginning. But he is providential in his care for us and so we trust that. God is caring for us in ways that we just can't fathom or understand. Number two, God's providence goes beyond his own people to everything. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, he causes the sun to rise on the good and on the evil. He sends rain on the wicked and on the good. This should produce a confidence and a strong hope in God, especially for the believer. He is working through all situations. He even blesses those who aren't a part of his family because of his goodness to us and his giving of life. God's providence goes beyond his own people. But number three, God is personally concerned about those who are his with a distinct personal relationship with them. He cares for the lost sheep and he will leave the 99 to chase after the one. In John 10, God's providence shows us the great shepherd who knows his sheep. In fact, he calls them by name. And what you see in the gospel is a picture of a God who is always in control, Jesus. And as he had control, he chose to walk in a way and relinquish that control to the will of the Father. Jesus was the one person who walked on this planet who had control over everything. He could still a storm with a word from his mouth. He could heal the worst kind of sickness simply by touching somebody. Simply hearing the name of Jesus healed people from, from places that he wasn't even in the vicinity for it to happen. Jesus is in control of everything. And as the one who's in control, when it came down, when his life depended on it, he could have taken up and he could have destroyed the Romans 
with a snap of his fingers and with a word from his mouth. He could have acted in such a way that his control was undeniable, rescuing himself from death, setting up his kingdom, and ruling and reigning from Jerusalem as he intended it to be from the very beginning. But guess what? In the gospel, he laid down that control. He gave it over to the will of the Father so that through his death and resurrection, through his redemptive work on the cross and shedding his blood for us, that we could have the forgiveness of sin because that, that was the thing that was needed the most from a providential God to care for us in a way of laying down his control instead of taking it up and doing something apart from the will of the Father. Instead, he lays it down. He is crucified for our sins, and by his shed blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. Folks, the, the doctrine of providence, things will happen that are beyond our control, but at the end of the day, we have a God who is always in control. He gives us freedom to make choices that please him, and freedom to make choices that don't please him. And behind all of it, he is causing everything to work out for good to those who love him. This is something that will sustain us not only in 2021, during a time of viruses and face masks, but also for the rest of our lives, not knowing what's going to happen, not seeing the day of our own death that has already been appointed for us. We can trust and love a sovereign God who is providential and in control. And if Ecclesiastes tells us nothing, it tells us at least that. To have the wisdom to live life with that understanding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, it seems like every, uh, every chapter, every verse we look at in Ecclesiastes is so applicable for our time. God, this morning I pray for our church family. Uh, we thank you for your care and for your sustenance and for you watching over us with a loving care and affection that is beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. We thank you for your love that is so deep that we can never plunge the depths of your affections and your care for us. We pray that every day that we walk on this earth, we would see the blessing that life truly is. Give us wisdom to live in a way that pleases you and to make free choices that will honor you and to worship you every single day of our lives. Father, help us not to walk in fear because we might die tomorrow. Help us not to walk in fear not knowing what's ahead of us, but trusting you completely, that you are in control. You have a sovereign plan that you care for us deeply and personally. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you have controlled everything by your perfect plan for us. And we ask that our lives would be caught up in your perfect will. We pray this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.